All right, good morning. Uh, it's so good to see you guys. I know that this weather is, um, is not a normal thing around here, uh, but definitely uh, to see, like everyone here, how good it is to see, to gather one with one another in the Lord. Amen? Amen. And so uh, it's such a pleasure to be here. Uh, I've only met Pastor George twice before here, not including last night. And all I can tell you is he has a wonderful reputation with the General Assembly leaders and things like that. Everyone respects him. But when I actually got a chance to meet with him these, these now three times, I can tell you um, he's a wonderful person. And I'm not just saying that uh, because he went to the same seminary that I did, although that does help, right? Um, but it is a pleasure and a privilege to be here. It is my blessing, and I hope that uh, what we say today, uh, the word that we bring here, is a blessing to you as well. All right, so can we pray for a bit, and then let's dive into this. Father, thank you for uh, bringing us all together. Uh, Indeed, uh, yes, it is true that uh, um, all things work for the good of those who love you, who are called according to your purpose. And we are here, Lord, by the blessing of your hand, your good pleasure. And so we pray, Lord, that we will learn even more to trust in the God who has all things in his hands. Who means, oh, maybe the world means certain evil things for our, our for evil. You mean these things for good and you use them to bring us victory accordingly. And so as we talk about things like biblical justice... And as we live in a world that is in desperate need of true justice, lasting peace, God, I pray that you will help us see a clear image of the Prince of Peace who truly brings about our justice through justification. Help us, Lord, then fix our eyes on this Jesus this morning in a way that has effects way into the future. Help us, Lord, see you now in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so our passage today is from Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. All right, let me read that for us. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. And I went up because of Revelation... And set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed amongst the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. Though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he 
who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So the grass withers and the flowers fade. Amen. Amen. So I'm going to just jump into this. This passage is about Paul, right? So when Paul met Jesus on the Damascus road, he was forced to rethink everything that he knew about God, how he practiced religion, and how this Jesus fits into the understanding of everything he knows about the Bible. And so this is how he came up with this doctrine of justification by faith, which basically says that we are not saved by obeying the law, but rather you're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Now, after 14 years of rethinking, he met with Peter, James, and John so that they could examine Paul's gospel, and they ended up loving it. But there was one caveat that they were really worried about. All right, here, here's what it was. Now, while it's true that Jesus had fulfilled the law and that faith and not obedience is what saves people, even so, the one part of the law that you must never forget as a Christian is what it says about the poor. And Paul agreed so heartily that he told them this was the very thing he was eager to do. Now, when I first read this, uh, this passage, I remember thinking, gee, out of all the things you could have picked, John, Paul, uh, excuse me, uh, James, <laughs> right, <laughs> Peter, this is oddly specific, right? The Jewish law has a lot of good and healthy things in it. So out of all the topics the Old Testament talks about, why would the apostles focus on this one thing? Let me read the verse to you. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. And here's the answer. The answer is because the laws about the poor, more than just about anything else, encapsulate what God wants us to know about justice. So this sermon is entitled, Remember the Poor, but it's actually a sermon about biblical justice. All right, now let me explain. Here's what I mean. When God created the earth, it was supposed to be the image of heaven. But because of sin, the, the earth no longer looks like heaven. Instead, it's trending more and more to look like hell. And there's so much suffering in this world that happens because of evil. And this evil is so pervasive that it makes it often really hard to believe that there is a God, or if there is a God, that God is love, or that God is good, right? So then what is justice in this context? Justice is taking everything in this world that has gone wrong because of sin and working to make it right again. One more time. So here's our basic definition of justice. 
Justice is taking something that has gone wrong, particularly because of sin, and making it right again. All right, so to give you an example, right, if you're a doctor and what what you're doing is you're making right the things that have gone wrong in your patients, right? The Bible would not call that charity. Instead, it calls it justice. And in the same way, when the apostles tell Paul to remember the poor, it's not a matter of charity. It is a matter of justice. Okay, well, where am I getting this from? And it's, the, it's from the Old Testament. So the first place that we would have to look, or one of the best places to look, is the book of Deuteronomy. So the book of Deuteronomy is a story about how God gave the Israelites the law and why. So in chapter 15, verses 4 and 5, it says this. But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all of this commandment that I command you today. So in plain English, it simply means this. That if the Israelites strictly obey the laws that God was commanding them to do, then there should be no poor people in their country. Right. So what was God, think about this, what was God trying to do with the nation of Israel when he invented Israel? And here's what it was. God was trying to establish a little piece of the earth that once again would look like heaven. And one of the main ways that God was doing that was by commanding the Israelites to eradicate poverty. All right, so what specific commands did God give? And when you read the law, particularly in Deuteronomy, it says things like this. If you are a farmer, do not harvest your entire field. Instead, leave the margins unharvested so that the poor and the immigrant at your gate can work the field for themselves so as to not starve. It was also things like tithing laws, which said that you must give one-tenth of all your earnings to the temple. But every third year, there was another tithe on top of your regular tithe that specifically went to the poor and the immigrant. And when you read through the Old Testament law, you find that there are so many laws that are like this that direct God's people to show concern for the poor, the fatherless, the widow, and even the immigrant at their gates, not as a matter of charity, but as a matter of justice. So when the apostles then told Paul, remember the poor, they're not saying in order to be saved, you have to help the poor, right? That's not what they were saying. Instead, they were were referring, see, they were referring to Paul's doctrine of justification. See, here's basically what was going on. If justification by faith does not lead to justice, then that kind of faith is useless. Or to use James's words in the letter of James, faith without works is dead. And this leads me to, to challenge you then. Never get to a point where you become so calloused that your heart is no longer moved by human suffering. So I live in Philadelphia now. I grew up in Philadelphia. I lived in New York for about five years or so. In New York especially, you see poor people every day. Uh, Homeless people, 
And the tendency is to shrug your shoulders and say, eh, it's, it's New York, right? But you see, I, what I'm telling you is that kind of callousness to human suffering could be a symptom that your faith is dying, right? You see that? And, and the, solving the problem is different. That, that, that's much harder. There's a lot of issues going on with poor people walking around in the subway. That's how do you deal with that? Homeless people in the subway, but callousness, that's what I'm talking about. This callousness where you're no longer moved by this sort of stuff. That's what you want to be on guard against. Okay, let's, that's, that's, um, that's the first part. So here, here's part two of the sermon. The poor in spirit. So important was helping the poor that when Jesus was giving his beatitudes, the very first one says at least in Matthew, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So here's basically what he means. When Rome conquered the world, they basically did it for money, right? Rome's military expansion was one big money-making operation. And though the Romans had many gods in their pantheon, it was very clear that their true god or true idol was actually money. Right? So follow me here. According to Tim Keller, whatever you idolize, you will always demonize its opposite. All right, so in the United States, let's say we romance, romance, uh, we idolize romance and, I don't know, physical attraction. Right? You see, it's like, oh, she's beautiful, ah, right? Or that guy, oh my gosh, right? Um, now, I mean, that's, it's just nor- that's a normal part of life, isn't it? It's one thing to simply have romantic attraction. It's another thing when it becomes an idol, isn't it? So an idol is a substitute God. It's something that you are looking for in order to give you what God can only give you. So if, if God's function in your life, according to Genesis, is you are very good. You are very good. That's what God says, isn't it? You are very good. And what happens is when you have a substitute God, you're looking to that to tell you you are very good. So let's say you have romantic attraction, right? You fall in love, and my significant other makes me feel like I am very good. Here's the problem with that. So if physical attraction is your idol, you will always demonize people who are overweight or people who appear to you to be ugly. See that? So, so you demonize its opposite, right? And let's go on. Um, you will, if, if your uh, idol is power, you will always demonize the weak and the marginalized. You always find yourself blaming them for their own troubles. But if you idolize money as they did in Rome, you will always find yourself demonizing the poor. And this is exactly what happened in Rome. And in many ways, that's what happens in this country. The poor are denigrated as objects of disgust. We don't want poor people in our house. We don't want to invite them in our restaurants or our shops. In fact, we tend not to want them sharing the same space as us ever. (laughs) Right? That's how great the disgust was for the poor in Rome. And that tends to be how we deal with them here, too. So what Jesus was saying was that in Jesus' kingdom, the poor are not only welcomed, they are actually the blessed ones, especially when you compare them to the rich and the powerful. So the kingdom of God doesn't belong to the rich and the powerful. 
Instead, it belongs to them. Now, Jesus doesn't just say, blessed are the poor, at least not in the the Gospel of Matthew. Instead, he says, poor in spirit. Remember that? Poor in spirit. And so he, he means that it's not just the actual poor who we treat like this. There are people all around us that are not actually homeless, but even so, we simply don't want them around us because they fill us with similar disgust. Maybe it's the foreigner at our gates. Maybe it, it's the, um, no, the sexual minority. Maybe it's someone who holds a different sociopolitical position than we do. These are the poor in spirit because we treat them the same way we treat the poor. There's a, there's a scholar who's black uh, I follow. His name is Anthony Bradley. And he's a Westminster graduate who is a scholar in residence at Redeemer. That's Tim Keller's church in Manhattan. And a while back, he made this argument that the reason that anti-black racism can be so hard to pin down, at least for non-black people in America, is because there tends to be this weird conflation between black and poor. So Bradley, like Tim Keller, is a PCA Presbyterian. And in the 1980s, uh, he saw the PCA uh, empower all of these Korean pastors to plant churches for working and middle-class Koreans. By the way, I'm going to, I'm going to um, use this as an illustration of something the PCA did that was not so great. But I got to warn you, the PCA, is, there are, we treat them like brothers. We're sister. We look at each other like family, right? And trust me, the EPC has plenty problems of our own. Right? Okay, so this is no way me denigrating the PCA, but as a matter of history, this actually happened. One more time. In the 1980s, Bradley saw the PCA empower all of these Korean pastors to plant churches for working and middle class Koreans. This is actually why there are so many Korean Presbyterian churches in the United States. But when black pastors asked the PCA to help them plant black working and middle-class churches, they were actually forbidden from doing so. Instead, they were told to send black working-class people to white Presbyterian churches. And a lot of this was because the PCA, they they weren't evil at the time, and that's not what the issue is. Instead, uh, this was because the PCA, like a lot of us, tended to wrongly think that the vast majority of people in the U.S. were poor, Black meant poor to too many people. And this is why Presbyterians today have all of these initiatives to try to help the urban poor, but have almost no black Presbyterian churches and pastors for that matter. By the way, this is changing. Both in the PCA and the EPC, this is changing. But this was a significant problem that we now, both the PCA and us, are working to rectify. Now, let's go on. This conflation isn't limited to Presbyterians. It happens all throughout the Western world. And this is how, in Philadelphia, you get a Starbucks manager calling the cops when there are two African-American businessmen who are not causing any trouble waiting at the Starbucks to discuss a business deal with a potential partner. This, is, this actually happened. And the manager, for whatever reason, treated those men as if they were two homeless people who walked off the streets. So in his mind, it's bad for business to let them stay. Now, here's my point. Here's my point. 
if you want to learn about justice, one of the ways to do that is to take a hard look at how society treats its poor. See, we tend to want them out of sight and out of mind, but the Jewish law refuses to let us do that. Instead, we are commanded to remember the poor, and by doing so, it puts us in a much better position to recognize and address other patterns of injustice as well. All right, so that's where we're going. So part three. There are only three parts of the sermon, right? So <laughs> let's roll with this last one. Justice as equity. So once we remember the poor and recognize patterns of injustice levied upon them, what do you do about that, right? And here's where the Jewish law gives us a really healthy directive. The Hebrew word for justice is mishpat. It appears 200 times in the Old Testament. And more, it generally means equity. So justice in the Bible isn't merely fairness. More than that, biblical justice is profoundly characterized by shalomic equity, right? Justice equals equity. Now, here's what I mean. Shalom is a systemic, system-wide harmony. There we go. Let me start that again. Shalom is all about a system-wide harmony where all parties involved are working for the mutual blessing and flourishing of one another. So when it comes to shalom, mutual flourishing is the name of the game. So to put it in plain English, it's one thing to charitably give an impoverished immigrant a piece of bread so they don't starve. It's a good thing, right? But it is quite another to work for an immigrant's flourishing in a way that helps them, A, stand on their own, and B, have an equal ability to bless and drive mutual flourishing as well. So this latter benchmark is the harder standard to meet, but nothing less than that is what is required in biblical justice. And this is what the book of James uh, is talking about when James's example of dead faith comes up. So when James talks about dead faith, it involves anyone who claims to be justified but sees his neighbor in need and does nothing about it, even after greeting them with the standard Jewish greeting, Shalom Elchem, which means peace be upon you, peace be with you. Now, there are so many Christians today who are going to cry, that's too hard, that's too hard. But the Bible says otherwise. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 11, it says this, for this commandment, this talk about helping the poor, this commandment that I give to you today is not too hard for you, neither is it that far off. So God is not talking about using the law for salvation. That would be too hard, right? How are you going to use the following the law to lead you to salvation? That's way too hard. Instead, what God is talking about is the kind of shalomic equity that is encoded in God's laws that can eradicate poverty from the nation of Israel. Listen. Is such equity too hard for us to achieve? It is not. So then how do you get there? How do you get there? Now, this last part is where I had practical ways to do it. But the practice actually works in New York. It might work in Philadelphia. I've noticed when you go to place to place, what works in California doesn't work in New Jersey, right? And vice versa. So therefore, instead of giving you try to do it this way, Right? Instead, I, I've met some of your pastors. They are brilliant. They really are. They're very, they're godly people who have been gifted with 
like wonderful wisdom. So I think they would have better practical steps in order to help this particular church deal with the situation that you're in. So instead, I'm going to paint you larger brush strokes to help you, to, to help you address this. Right? Number, number one, I'm only going to give you two. Learn to remember the poor and to see them as equals. Okay, so here's the problem. Here's the problem. You guys know idolatry, right? So if we, we all have idolatries, that's the, the issue. It's, I, Keller actually has a funny thing. He basically says that all sin can actually be turned into idolatry. Here, he's following Martin Luther, who said that you never break any of the Ten Commandments without breaking the first one first. So the first one is, you shall have no other gods before me. And what happens is every single time you break another commandment, right, that shall not murder, hopefully, that shall not commit adultery, you're actually breaking the first one first because you don't have the faith that God's lordship is enough for you. And so all sin, therefore, can be understood as idolatry. That's the first thing. This is how idols work. Do you remember when we said, if your idol is money, right, then what you start doing is you start ranking every person that you interact with as haves and have-nots. So the ones that help you with money, whatever it may be, if that's your idol, then those are the have. It creates a hierarchy. And so you could do this with romantic attraction. So which means if romantic attraction, right, is your idol, what will happen is you will rank every single person in the room with you as the blessed and the demonized. You're cursed, right? Because you're attractive and you're not. And it, and it creates what? What is it? It's a hierarchy, isn't it? And so that's what idols do. They force you to look at the world in terms of these hierarchies. Not all hierarchies are bad. Jesus is our hierarchical head. So hierarchies cannot be all bad. It's, it's those people who are saying that, you gotta like, you know, have a little balance there. But on the other hand, when an idol is what's creating your hierarchy, you have to understand something is seriously wrong and you're gonna hurt people. Instead of creating a heavenly space that looks like heaven, you're gonna create a world, a space that looks like hell. And so one of the things that if you want to address this problem is you're going to have to confront your own idols, recognize them, and work to dismantle them. So the way I share the gospel goes like this. They're, they're, right? So we talk about justification, so please don't misinterpret me by saying I don't believe in justification. My goodness, I would remove myself from the password if that ever happened. But here, here's the, it's a simple way, an idolatry-focused way. Here we go. When Jesus died on the cross and rose again, he fixed everything. And there is a day coming when we will all see with our own eyes that it's true. Amen, right? Now, here's the thing. The reason you're turning to idols is because somewhere along the line, it's hard to believe that that's true. And so when you're faced with, here's money's going to fix my problem. Falling in love is going to fix my problem. Power is going to fi fix my problem. You see, you see where these idolatries come from. And what the gospel does is it forces you to choose which one do you really believe is going to fix these issues. And what happens is every time you put your faith in the gospel, it undermines the power of the idol to control your life. You see that? And one of the telltale signs that you are overcoming your idols with the gospel is the hierarchy that the idol built for you starts to break down. So what happens is if you're looking at the poor and you're constantly seeing them on the have-nots of the hierarchy scale, right? 
meaning you look at them with disgust. I, we all do it. I, we all do it. And what happens is, what starts to happen is, you start seeing not a person with disgust, but rather someone who has equitable parity with you as an image of God-bearer. Right? See, see that's how that's. So number one, learn, learn to, to confront and attack your idolatries so that you can help see the poor as equals. That's the first way to remember the poor. Here's number two. Um, you need to learn how to be kingdom-oriented. All right, so here's where I I didn't learn about the kingdom of God until I got to seminary. I was like, what was I doing this entire time? (laughs) And um, the kingdom of God, here's all it is. Jesus is a king. And just like every king, they have laws. Every country, a kingdom is a country. A kingdom has laws. Isn't that right? And the law of God, the Ten Commandments, that's God's law. Now, here we go. If you, the, in Hebrew, the law of God, the Ten Commandments, they're all written in the future tense. Let me say that again. The law is all written, all of them, all ten of them, they're written in the future tense. All right, so for you Hebrew scholar aficionados, grammar aficionados, there's no such thing as tense in Hebrew. But if I said future imperfect aspect, that doesn't mean anything to anybody, right? Okay, so let's go with future. Here's what this means. So which means you can interpret these laws, any one of them, either as a command, you shall not murder, or a prophecy. There is a day coming where murder will never characterize your life again. Violence will never characterize your life again. You can do this with every law. Theft. There is a day coming where idolatry will no longer characterize our lives again. You see, and what happened, what happened is the ancient Jews, the ancient Jews, yes, they had issues. Of course, of course, we have disagreements with, with Judaism, things like that. But one of the things that they have that I think we need to hold on to is that the ancient Jews looked at the law not as follow this law or God will cast you aside. Instead, they looked at it and they saw it prophesying a time and a space where This is the reality. This is our inheritance. This is the kind of world that God is going to give us. So when God says, here is the Torah, you people of God, come be with my people. Make me your king. And this is the world that we will establish on the earth. This explains why there are so many faithful people who were willing to sacrifice their own lives For the world the law was pointing to. And in John, it says the law. This is this is actually this is a really wonderful way to translate John 1 1. The one one twelve, excuse me. The law became flesh and dwelt among us. Everything the law was pointing to became true in Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ died on that cross and rose again. This is the world he ushered into reality. And those who put their faith in Jesus Christ have the right to become children of God and citizens of this new time and space. Amen? Amen. One of the problems that we're having then is that there's too much separation between justice and the kingdom. Right? As if you can have justice without having God's kingdom. For a Christian, that is absolutely impossible because that's the missing element uh, when you divorce justice from the kingdom that justice will have no direction and it will often create an idiosyncratic version of justice that actually does more harm than good 
Instead, how do we do it? All right, now, again, there are different ways to do it. I want to make it simple. So therefore, instead of giving you an intellectual argument, I decided to give you an emotional, experiential one. Is that okay? I mean, I'm Presbyterian, but hey, you know, you got to roll with whatever you got, right? I'm going to show you a video. And this is the end of the sermon. I'm going to show you a video about how to introduce justice that hopefully touches your heart and inspires you to believe that there is a world that is not characterized by sin and it's not too far off. And we can get to that world together, not by trying harder, but by placing our faith in the one who really will deliver to us. That's what, it, what a Christian is. You trust that Jesus is going to deliver what the law was promising, but by itself could never get to us, right? Oriented people. And in the gospel, the way that Jesus puts it, right? The deaf hear, the blind see, the lame walk, and the poor have the good news preached to them. Amen. May this be a gospel-centric church, and may the gospel spread to the ends of the earth that one day it will result in justice in a way that helps us glorify our God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending Jesus, the true justice of the world, that we had a Jesus who had every right to, to pronounce condemnation, but instead he spoke justification in our hearts. And so, Lord, I pray that those who are justified, that will manifest the fruit that appears as justice in this world. And I pray that you will help us then do the kind of justice that orients people's hearts, not to just a general sense of well-being, but rather that Jesus is truly Lord and should be Lord over all the earth. And I pray that you would help that be the number one thing in our hearts as we go out and live gospel-centric lives that bring Jesus glory. Help us to do this well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.